Please welcome the brave doctors of FLCCC, the Unity Project, and the Global COVID Summit. I didn't know that knowledge would launch me into 15 months of watching corruption unfold every day in the newspapers and the televisions and the medical journals. They lie. We live, unfortunately, in the United States of Pharma. The pharmaceutical industry is killing people. They do not care. They put profits ahead of people's lives. They do this rapaciously, relentlessly, and they're doing it today. And nobody's aware of it. I can't recognize a society where suddenly we're celebrating pharmaceutical companies and we listen to their CEOs tell lies. And those lies get put in newspapers and they kill people. And they lead to these ridiculous mandates. And I'm watching people die. I've been in ICUs for 15 months with lungs whited out, people dying on ventilators, families crying, families getting destroyed, and they're all needless deaths. I know this. Early treatment works. I'm watching needless death all over the place. And this is a sad message. But I got to tell you, now I'm an expert at the corruption. I see it everywhere. I see what they're doing. They're practicing disinformation. They know how to do it. They've learned it from the tobacco industry last century who perfected the tactics of disinformation. And I think everyone here recognizes it, but nobody else does. There's so few, so few Americans who recognize what is happening. They have taken control of information and they are infecting our brains with lies. And I see good doctors who literally are pushing vaccines on people, who are willing to vaccinate toddlers against a cold virus. This is insane. The world has gone mad and it's not their fault. It's from unrelenting propaganda and censorship of good information. So I want you guys to keep fighting, keep spreading the truth. I feel morally and ethically obligated to show up wherever asked to keep spreading truth. And I thank you for your support. We need to stop the tyranny. We need to stop it now. We need to speak out. We need to speak out for the truth. And medical freedom must supervene. We need to let doctors be doctors and do what doctors do. Doctors treat their patients because they're the ones that know best. They are the patient's doctor. It needs to be a contract between the patient and his doctor. They should decide alone what treatment to give. It's no business of the federal government or agencies to tell doctors how to practice medicine. So I thank you all for being here because together, together we are much stronger than we are alone and our voices will be heard and their lies will be caught, they will be caught out for their lies and ultimately they are going to take responsibility for the devastation that they have caused. Thank you my friends and thank you for being here. We all in this together. Thank you. I've never seen in my life, and I've never heard in history, people celebrating the absence of therapies for a disease that killed millions. 
So say celebrate when a paper comes out showing that ivermectin doesn't work, which is not true at all. But they celebrate the absence of therapies. What are these people wanting? Okay, so this is first time we see this kind of stuff. So I want to just ask you one thing. I want science back. I want science, the real science to be rescued. Real scientists are silenced, are suppressed, are gaslighted. We want to speak out again. We want to give opportunity. The suppression of the discussion means something. What are they hiding from us? That's my message. Thank you very much. I'm Flavio Cadegeni, representing not only Brazil, but also the full world. We need America to become America again. We need America. We need you guys. We need you guys. We need all of you. We sure do. And our team was thrilled that so many of you went to Los Angeles and showed up and were among the 25,000 people that were there. That was pretty good turnout and stopped by our booth and said how much you really appreciated our standing up for doctors. And that's exactly what we do. We're about doctors' right to be doctors, to practice medicine as they know and see best uh, for each and every individual patient and not to have to knuckle under to corporate or government diktats that determine uh, you know, whatever you have to treat and what you can't treat with. And these are set by people who've never treated a COVID patient or probably any other patient. We are fighting to protect doctors who follow the Hippocratic Oath, who want to save the lives of their patients primarily, not primarily push whatever pads corporate profits. Well, welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of the Alliance, and I'm here with two of our doctors who were out in L.A., and they're going to share their thoughts about the event. And they're people who have been attacked and are still being attacked for saving lives throughout the pandemic and daring to try to teach other doctors around the world how they did it so that more lives could be saved. What's what's wrong with that, folks? Am I missing something here? Pierre Corey and Flavio Cadigiani are going to tell you. Plus, we have another brave physician with us tonight, Jackie Stone, who's currently on trial, excuse me, on trial and threatened with prison time for saving patients' lives. <coughs> it gets to me. <coughs> it really does. Betsy, do you I need can't to save make you? This, you can't make this up. I mean, for using a Nobel Prize winning medicine. Anyway, it's really happening. Now, while you listen to the doctors, four of our top nurses are working behind the scenes to answer questions you type into Q&A. And I'll be back with your questions uh, after I have a drink of water um, with for the doctors. So doctors, take it away. Yeah, so... I guess, Flavio, let's start talking. We want to talk to Jackie, but um, you want to share your thoughts on the rally this Sunday? By the way, before you do that, I want to tell you, your speech was great. I really loved your speech, especially the clip that we just watched. It was it was awesome. So thank you. 
Oh, I thank you for the opportunity to talk there. I think that's a once in a lifetime. And we are living in a historical moment that uh, could uh, lead us to two different up ways. And it's up to us to decide where to go. And it's up to you and me, Pierre, to help people understand and wake up. And we will be working until people wake up. So I think that these speeches we gave uh, were not only for that day. We had 25,000 people. They were extremely engaged. It seems like people are truly waking up. And my feeling was a feeling of behaving, a feeling of uh, feeling not alone. Because sometimes when you look at read, uh, when you realize, for example, this last trial that was published, Together trial, uh, with uh, negative stuff, negative results for ivermectin, and you realize you're sort of gaslighted because you see it published in a high impact journal, fat uh, pack journal. And so, okay, what is wrong with me? Because what am I losing here? Because this is so flawed. It's extremely questionable with a lot of uh, inconsistencies, not to say worse things. But my feeling was that we were just in the beginning of a new way of, an, uh, of the beginning in the world of the truth. And they won't allow it to come so quickly because if it comes too quickly, it may... Uh, compromise some so it will come slowly but we need to keep pushing and pushing but i was it was i was above any expectation thank you very much yeah no i i, I like everything you said flavio i mean i'm just going to be brief and say that you know it's weird like i just watched this my speech and uh i don't remember what i said i had nothing prepared i just went up there and just said what i said but um it's just weird that like I'm a physician who basically buried myself in medicine and ICUs trying to figure out different diseases, trying to always figure out how to do it better than we have done. And now I'm sitting there and I'm just calling corruption. You know, like you mentioned the together trial, it's just the latest action of corruption. You know, and that it's, it's a weird message, but I, I, I feel, you know, I said at the end, I'm morally and ethically obligated I, I, you know, I'm always been an educator. So I just, I feel like it's my responsibility to share my insights and knowledge of what I've learned in this pandemic. And, and for many of the people listening, I don't really talk about ivermectin data anymore because I've long ceased to believe that this is a data argument. I mean, it's a proven effective medicine that we've used it effectively for, you know, well over a year now. And, and it's it just, I don't know, it's sad, but that day was good. Like, we, like you said, Flavio, we, we connected with a lot of people, a lot of people showed up, but one of the things that I said in my speech is that, you know, as happy as I was to see everybody connect with everyone. And you walked in the crowd, I walked in the crowd. It was so great to meet all these people and they're so appreciative of our work, but like, I feel about the people who weren't there. You know, all those people who weren't there that needed to hear those messages and need to hear what's going on. And so um, I don't want to say it was bittersweet, but uh, it was really a beautiful day. It was not only beautiful weather, but all the speakers and everyone who showed up and, you know, some of the some of the vaccine injured are my patients. And, you know, being able to actually connect with them personally, not via telehealth and just just meeting a whole bunch of cast of characters who who figured out the truth and, and are willing to speak up for it. It was just a beautiful day. So anyway, that's that's all I want to say on it. And then um, so let's transition to our guest tonight, Dr. Jackie Stone. Do Jackie, you've been on before. 
we had you way back in the beginning. Um, can you do me a favor? Do it again. Can you introduce yourself? You know, like what you are, who you are, what you've been trained in. And then we're going to talk about, um, I, I want to talk about your experience in, in Zimbabwe and, and what's really going on with you now. I think many of our listeners probably or viewers probably know what's going on with you, but um, it's it's a shocking tale, shocking development. And it's it's, I hope, foreign to what we would experience here. Um, but it's it's a tale that needs to be told. So um, um, you go, you go, girl, as they say. Um, thanks, Pierre. Um, so just as by way of introduction, um, I'm my name's Dr. Jackie Stone. I basically was born in Zambia, grew up in Zimbabwe, trained in Cape Town, cum laude out of medicine in 1989, went on to do a medical biochemistry honors degree. And I will say one of the things that I really have noticed about a lot of the frontline clinicians is they have a BSc as well as medicine, because medicine teaches you to follow protocols and a basic science degree teaches you to think. Um, and from there, um, I went to the UK, spent quite a lot of time at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London in the infection and immunity department, which at that time was predominantly HIV. Um, you got the odd case of malaria, but everything was really HIV. And I was in London at the time when triple therapy was introduced. And we went from vaccines not working, monotherapy not working, lots of money spent on end-stage disease to everybody getting better. It was also a time that I was introduced to patients using silver because all the patients using um, certain types of silver, what I would call ionanosilver, we're all surviving. But at that stage, I was an extremely arrogant medical registrar, and I didn't believe that anything other than pharmaceuticals worked. So I was probably not as receptive for that time. Left the UK, ended up spending 12 years in the Middle East, working for a major airline, 135 different nationalities. So in terms of my educational background, I did my physician's qualification in England. I also did my diploma in aviation medicine through King's College London. Um, and from there, we left Dubai in about 2008, I went to Australia. I did my fellowship with the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners there. And I also did um, my fellowship in aerospace medicine. Jackie, so I only that, used that's, that. I only... that's an amazing like international, you know, compendium of education. I mean, you, you, you've been exposed and, and trained in a few different countries and, and, and multiple areas. Um, when you mentioned training She's in aviation, we don't have. She's yeah. got a view we don't have. Exactly. No, no, no. We we all come out of a certain system. Now, I would also say that they're mostly advanced health economy systems. But, but Jackie, you just mentioned about aviation. Can I just ask you just a quick question? How's aviation medicine doing? How are those pilots doing? The pilots are struggling a lot. Um, just on the subject of aviation medicine, because there's a lot of aviation medicine doctors who have become involved in COVID. And the big thing about aviation medicine is it's all about risk assessment. You don't put a pilot who's recently had a stent in an aircraft with 300 people at the back without doing a very, very strong risk-benefit assessment. And there are lots of little, little formulas and things to assess risk-benefit. So from an AVMED point of view, I think aviation medicine doctors are very well trained in travel. We're used to SARS-1, 
because we all went through SARS-1. And we also understand hypoxia very, very well because they put us in hyperbaric chambers and desaturate us in our training. So mm. I think AvMed was a huge advantage for me. From the point of view of the pilots, um, I have to be careful what I say because most people know what airline I used to work for. But a lot of people have had their careers absolutely devastated as far as I'm concerned, completely unnecessarily. Because if we knew that Ivermectin worked by August, September 2020, none of this was necessary. Um, I know at least three or four pilots who've had thrombotic events. One particular pilot WhatsApp me a picture of his leg three days after AstraZeneca and said, what do you think is going on? I said, you've got a thrombosis, get to hospital now. Um, he went in with, and I was in Zimbabwe, he was in Dubai, and he went in with a severe headache and they were scanning him frantically. I actually think that he had an early uh, cavernous sinus thrombosis, but they, throm they gave him antithrombotics quickly enough. So the pilots are struggling, huh? They're dropping no, dead. They Jackie, the, the reason why... You know, the reason why I ask is because I was also involved with the trucker convoy here in the U.S. And there was a lot of people that came together. And one of them was the head of like a pilots association that are trying to fight the mandates. And um, I was talking to him. He was the founder. And, and uh, the stories he was telling me about what was happening with the pilots were just shocking. I mean, I think it's a lot more than maybe the pilot associations you're dealing with in Zimbabwe because we're a bigger country. But, I mean, he recounted many tales of cardiac arrests in the air, heart attacks, and and how their their health is really deteriorating. They've never seen health events uh, as they've seen in, in the past year. And so I know it's a difficult topic, and I, I just had to ask. No, pilots, there's another quick thing I'd like to say, and that is that... In 12 years with Emirates, oopsie, wrong airline, with a Middle Eastern airline, I didn't see a single pilot actually have a heart attack in the air because at 50 years old, we put them on a treadmill and we stent them before they have their MI. So in all that time, we never saw any MIs um, in 12 years and they are happening fast and furiously at the moment. So I think um, if you were to compare a decade ago with the same subgroup, I think you'd see very, very different results. And because pilots are screened for cardiac disease, they, they're a very good group to study. Yeah. Well, let's, let, we're going to move off this topic. I would say that you're seeing unprecedented heart attacks in the pilots. Um, I would just offer all of those European and Middle Eastern American or soccer or uh, European football players, right? Uh, collapsing on the field. I mean, that, that, that's been the most outrageous to me is that that has not been addressed or talked about. I mean, so much stuff is buried, but, um, but this is happening everywhere. I mean, people who take care of patients like you, you take care of pilots, you're an aviation medicine specialist. I mean, we, we're all seeing things we've never seen before. And it's, it's, it's sad, but Jackie, let's go back to you. So we know your background and training. How long have you lived in Zimbabwe? So I came back in 2015, 2015. Um, for lots of reasons. My parents are getting on. I wanted my kids to grow up with a bit more resilience than they were doing in the West. So many personal reasons. I like that. More resilience. Okay. And then can you just tell me now, like, tell us your, because the main thing that we want to focus on, right, is this court case, which you're in the middle of. You were just in court today. But can you bring us yeah. from the beginning of COVID what you did, what or what you learned, what you did, uh, you know, your results, because you've talked a lot about that, and then how we got to today, which is 
that you're literally in court where you are being threatened with not only loss of license, but potential jail term. So we have to separate the fact that I've already been through the council hearings. I've been found guilty of gross misconduct. I have had my license severely restricted. I can practice only under supervision. But I'm why, not Jackie, house why? Not um, What did you do? So I tell us, because like, I, well, I know your story. I know, I mean, you you and I have known each other for over a year and we, we've both known that ivermectin is efficacious. We both tried to disseminate and treat our patients with that. But tell us where your origin was with ivermectin. My sense, you knew it before we did. You, you knew it before the FLCCC was talking about it. So I'll give you a bit of a background. Obviously, I've lived all over the world, which is a huge advantage, okay, because I can pick up the phone and pick up to an Australian colleague, and if it's 3 o'clock in the morning, I phone someone in the States. So um, in my time, obviously. But basically, my background has always been biochemistry. My father is a land surveyor, ran a metallurgy and geology department, so I grew up around metallurgists and geologists, and I know an enormous amount about basic chemistry and basic biochemistry. And I guess that governs my thought processes rather than guidelines, procedures, and protocols. So to cut a very long story short, London, all the HIV patients who were taking silver were doing well, and they survived triple therapy, and they're probably still alive today. Then we move on to SARS-1, which was 2003. I was on the emergency task force for the airline industry. We had lots of cabin crew coming down with it. I was working with a BART-trained Indian doctor, but she was very into Ayurvedic medicine, who obviously into ionic and nanosilver. And we both concluded that if we got it, we were going to nebulize ourselves with this stuff because it was shown to stop coronavirus from replicating and any basic, basically any viruses, predominantly RNA viruses. So silver was always an interest of mine. So I was back in Zim, Beginning of 2020, the pandemonium was breaking. We were expecting it to spill into Africa. Africa was going to be a disaster. We had 17, one seven ventilators in Harare with a population of 3 million people. Yeah, so I, I, I learned that today, well. Jackie. I, I, as an ICU doctor, when I, heard, I just learned that today because people have been listening to your other talks. 17 ventilators, 3 million people. Yeah. So there was no plan. We just knew that we couldn't let them get to that point. So just from a biochemistry point of view, to cut a, a long story short, I made a bunch of, you can make silver, it's done with a homeopathic, or I would call it an electrolysis chemistry route, but a lot of people would classify it as homeopathic. It's actually not. The basic chemistry is very, very simple. And that is that silver phosphate is insoluble and the backbone of DNA and RNA is phosphate. So when a silver iron, which silver is one of the safest substances in the world, they've used it for 5,000 years. When a silver iron binds to phosphate, the solubility coefficient is 0.000057, which means it doesn't dissolve in anything. And when you're trying to, when the replication mechanism is trying to go down the RNA or DNA strand, it's going to hit a block and it's like a zip getting stuck. There's no further replication. 650 organisms have been shown to be inhibited by silver, and Pseudomonas is actually one of them. And we all know how hard that is to treat. And there was a paper in Nature in about 2017, 2018, showing that antibiotics are a thousand fold times 
as effective if attached to silver nanoparticles. And I think from your own experience, if you ever use an endotracheal tube um, or a tracheostomy tube that's silver impregnated, you very seldom get an infection. So the silver science was there. Um, I had made some silver, patient came in, 51 years old, um, tachypneic, saturating 83%, after 83 to 86, um, very distressed. And I said, you can't stay here. I'm in a clinic in um, Harare, go to the hospital. And he said, I've just come from there. The hospital's on strike. So I was stuck with somebody and I really didn't know what to do with them. And I, my mentor, a guy called Arthur Dunkley, who's probably the, the smartest doctor I've met in my life and who unfortunately died in Cape Town asking for ivermectin of probably six months ago. But Arthur always said to me, if you don't know what to do, do something safe and go away and think hard and read. So we put him in the room. I put him on nebulized silver with one of the nurses there and basically went and had a look. And really, at that stage, we really didn't know what to do with these cases. Anyway, SATs came up to about 91%, sent him off for chest X-ray, bilateral viral pneumonia, lymphopenia on his blood count, typical COVID picture. At that stage, we couldn't test. And he walked back in four hours later, SATs 93, flirting with the nurses, laughing, cheerful. I kind of figured he had a twin or my antipsychotics had worn off because I was clearly hallucinating. Anyway. I remember that story. I love it. I love it. It's an origin story. Yeah. So he was my very first patient and I went, this stuff works. But the most important thing for me was that the fear went away. I suddenly thought I'm not scared of this thing anymore. I know how to treat it. And when I got it in April, 2020, I did treat myself with silver. I got better. I hit it hard. I hit it early. But following on from that, we also knew March, 2020, we said, well, monotherapy is never going to work. We know that. We know it from HIV. We are infectious diseases doctors here. We have 1.4 million people in this country, minimum, who are HIV positive. We have 135,000 cases a year of malaria. COVID's actually third or fourth on the list in terms of infectious disease. What do we know from HIV? Monotherapy doesn't work. What do we know from TB? Monotherapy doesn't work and you get resistance. What do we know from malaria? You don't hit it on day one or two, good luck on day five because you've got a patient with cerebral malaria, renal shutdown and gangrene. So we, the, this whole concept of do nothing made absolutely no sense. And we didn't have the ventilators to deal with people when they did come back short of breath. So we basically went, what's likely to work? And again, getting back to the whole chemistry thing, we've known since the 90s that zinc in high quantities within the cell inhibits RNA polymerase, which means it isn't just going to stop COVID. It's going to stop influenza virus, rhinovirus, respiratory syncytial virus, and I could go on and on, Ebola, dengue, the whole lot. Um, And so we went, um, okay, zinc, we need to get zinc levels up. We know that they're low in the elderly, the diabetic, the obese, but we also need to get zinc into the cell because zinc is a charged molecule and it needs to get through a fatty membrane. So what are zinc ionophores? There are five, ivermectin, doxy, uh, quercetin, hydroxychloroquine, 
hydroxychloroquine. So we used hydroxychloroquine very early with azithromycin. They both accumulate in the lysosome and we had reasonable effects, but nothing quite like what happened when we added ivermectin. So we were starting to use zinc, hydroxy, azithro because hydroxy was quite topical at that stage. And then the July wave hit us and there were no, none of the hospitals were ready. The main state hospital had no ventilators. The private hospital only opened mid-August. We were patients in the car parks, patients. We converted a staff room into a four bed ward and we had four beds, oxygen cylinders and some monitors and that was it. And um, Martin Gill, who I think that you know quite well from Joburg, he and yeah. I have been collaborating because he also has an interest in silver. We've shown it to be effective in malaria, HIV, all sorts of other things as well. Um, and basically, Martin and I had a conversation on the 7th of August where we both lost a lot of um, patients and we were so tired and so exhausted and so sick of people dying in cars because we didn't, there was no capacity. And Martin added silver to his regime and I added ivermectin to mine. Martin had a 22-bed hospital in an old age home. He cleared it in six days. Well, he didn't clear it in six days. ICU was cleared in six days, but by the end of about two weeks, no one was left in the hospital. And then as far as I was concerned, I had three patients that I was pretty sure I was gonna walk into three bodies in the morning. And I walked in in the morning and there they all were sitting up having breakfast and chatting. So and Jackie, I just went- Jackie, just to oh. interject because the last time we talked and and like I, I loved when I got like, you were so good. Like you took pictures of like the pulse ox and the plethysmography, right? With you can see the bounding pulses yeah. and like you were showing like these really cool temporal relations with ivermectin treatment. Like, I mean, I already knew it worked, but you know, and then the sialic acid receptors and the, you know, the sort of the bunching of the red blood cells. I mean, you showed it like at the bedside, which we also knew like biochemistry, right. And, you know, and, and so it was just great when we first got to talk to you and hear your experience. Because like I said, Jackie, you knew this stuff before we did. You were using ivermectin, I think it was uh, August, July of 2020, right? Like you just said? August the 8th. We introduced it on August the 8th, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I remember. And when we came out saying that the data was overwhelming, that was uh, starting in October with Paul. And then my paper and my testimony was November and December. Um but so, like, you figured it out. So where did you get into trouble? Okay. So the interesting thing is September the 19th, 2020, we gave a big conference. All doctors were on WhatsApp groups. Everybody was being taught about this. Everybody was excited about it. There were some non-believers um, and some people that were anti. And we said, do what you like, but this is what we're doing with our patients. No problem. Zim was really, really doing well. Um, then the December wave hit, and um, it's quite a complex story because the story really goes, we did our, like, Tom Barodi came out August 2020 saying it worked. We came out September 2020. You came out November. Um, Andrew Hill was December. Tess Laurie was January. Yes. So the evidence was overwhelmingly there, Okay. Our spike took off in early January and people were starting to use ivermectin, but there was quite a lot of resistance and that resistance was coming from our public health physicians. And somebody who's very high up with our public health physicians is trained in London. She's an English professor 
She's out here, courtesy of the Wellcome Trust, who I'm sure you know um, have some very interesting conflicts of interest. Oh yeah. And she was saying she was saying to all the public health physicians, this is rubbish, there's insufficient evidence. And what I was doing was maverick, rogue, no evidence base, all the rest of it. Anyway, that was happening, but I kind of ignored it because the doctors here just get on with it. We've got sick patients. We don't have ventilators. We know to treat early. We're first world trained, third world experience. Big numbers, hit hard, hit early. Contain the cluster with prevention. Bye. Don't come back. Okay. Well, Makes a lot back, of sense to me. Yeah. So that was very much our approach. Um, and then what's really interesting is because it all came out in court today. Um, so I went into the courtroom this morning. They changed the prosecutor. They changed the magistrate. They changed the courtroom. This is my fourth time. Wait, wait, court, Jackie, hold on, hold on. Jackie, hold on. We talked before a little bit before we came on the webinar. So after you did all that, what you just said, I don't want you to jump ahead too far because you already told me that you okay. you ran into some trouble even before the court case today with the, the council meeting. Can you just explain like yeah. what happened to you as a physician against the system? That, or, or that was promoting or advocating for treatments that the system would not recognize. Okay, so let me, what came out in the courtroom today made what happened then very, very clear. Okay. So about the 14th of, of um, January, Andrew Hill was coming out strongly in favor of ivermectin, as were you, as were Tess. So we were very confident in promoting it, particularly as triple therapy. On the 17th of January, well, on the 15th of January, I was videoed on the 16th, those videos were released by a patient and I was describing how to use triple therapy. Those videos went viral. And on the 17th of January, it transpires that a member of our medical council, together with Professor Ferrand, on the Sunday, the 17th of January, they were in the medical council during lockdown. And we know that because a phone call was made on a landline from medical council to one of our primary care doctors. And letters were composed and released onto social media that were beyond derogatory, calling for my deregistration and my arrest on the basis that I was a threat to public safety because I was using unregistered veterinary medicines on the public. Wow. On the 18th of January, an inspection happened where they literally raided me and they were looking for things that I had done wrong. So there'd been two doctors hit in Zimbabwe. The other doctor got ransacked and they couldn't find anything wrong. So they reported him to the police for having a dangerous machine, which was a portable ultrasound machine in the maternity unit. What? Okay. By the way, I'm an expert at ultrasound. That's that. It's literally what happened. That's literally what happened. He still hasn't got his ultrasound machine. The message is going out to Zimbabwean doctors, but it's not coming out from our government because our government support ivermectin. But our government are also it's our medical council, and my biggest interest now is I want to find out who funds our medical council. That's my, my mission for the next uh, week or two. It's going to be difficult, but I'm going to find out. So um, basically, on the 18th, they raided me. 
I was apparently practicing medicine without a license. The problem was that we pay ourselves on the 1st of January. Lockdown, which was a holiday, lockdown happened on the 2nd of January. The banking internet system wasn't working for Medical and Dental Council. I got COVID on the 3rd of January and I couldn't go in physically to pay my subs because I'd been sick and because they were locked down anyway. There wasn't anyone there. So when they picked me up, uh, teaching patients how to use oxygen, they basically accused me of practicing medicine without a license. Now, that was never the intention of the legislature. The intention of the legislature was that Joe Soap doesn't go and set up practice as Dr. Joe Soap if he hasn't been fully accredited. And I have been through the full accreditation system with medical council, including doing three months unpaid hospital in order to be allowed to work. So they basically found done wrong that carried a criminal charge and they imposed those criminal charges. And the message was very clear to doctors in Zimbabwe, if you mess with ivermectin, use ivermectin, this is what might happen to you. There are other things I have to be careful of saying in terms of political correctness. But given my, um, I'm not a person of color. If, let me put it slightly differently. If I was a black male trained in Zimbabwe, there would have been outcry from the medical community if I'd been treated the way that I was. But I was a bit of an unknown. I'd just come back to the country. Um, and it was very easy for medical counsel to say, she's a quack, she's um, a maverick doctor. And yeah. once yeah. they splashed the press releases all over the paper saying I was a public hazard and everything was released onto social media, I became completely ostracized by the physicians and the specialists in this So, so Jackie, when, can you just tell me, when were you criminally charged? When, when was the first charge lodged at you? Because right now you're fighting your criminal case, correct? Okay. So on the 18th, there was an inspection. On the night of the 18th, the police arrived at my house telling me that I was making... I was dealing in dangerous drugs and were and uh, making chemical poisons. By the I refused to go in because they didn't have a warrant. The charges were laid by the registrar of the medical council because I demanded to know who my accuser was. In January. The in January 2020. Once yeah. you have laid criminal charges, you cannot actually retract them. Hmm. So the actual whole story, which I think I've told you before. Um, I went out to the police station. They then referred me to the narcotics division of Harare Central Prison. And they then decided that I wasn't dealing in dangerous drugs, that I was advertising, which I denied because I didn't release the videos. And then they said I, they were detaining me until such time as they came up with the charges that were still coming, with further charges. So it's effectively detained without charge. Um, when they detained. found out that I you were detained, COVID, I was on the pavement. Hmm? You were detained, Jackie. Yeah, <laughs> like in, in jail or whatever. Very, um, Wait, how long were you detained for? Well, they were going to detain me for a month without bail or trial. But when my son and my other half were bringing down all my clothes, I asked them to bring my oxygen cylinder and my nebulizer. And they said, what do you need that for? And I said, well, I'm still oxygen dependent at night. 
And they said, why? I said, well, I had COVID. I've just had COVID. It was the funniest thing. I swear, they reckon nobody has got out of Harare Central Prison that quickly. I was on the pavement in five minutes. <laughs> My gosh, that's pretty funny. As soon as you said that, all right, that's the get out of jail free card. Um, I was like, we're detaining you for a month. Get out. Uh, can you make up your mind, please? <laughs> So, I mean, they anyway, moved very quickly in January of 2021. They, you know, as soon as you started talking about ivermectin and low cost effective therapies uh, that were not recommended by the, you know, regulatory bodies and whatnot, they moved against you. And the, the idea that you could get detained for that is just absurd. I mean, that's the first absurdity. I mean, your case is full of absurdities, but what was the next legal process against you? Because you said like the council restricted your rights to practice medicine severely because because what you're doing now it's it's a criminal case is that right jackie let, let me just explain like yeah, can yeah, you explain what the two cases are so the medical council have tried me for gross misconduct based on the same four charges which are practicing without a license i was in a church so i was practicing from unregistered premises I was in a church gazebo because it was very well aerated. Um, there were no beds in Harare. There was no oxygen left. Everywhere was full. So we opened up a church gazebo for volunteers to come and help. And we taught people to use oxygen and to nebulize. And we told them what to do to look after their sick relatives at home. Wow. And I was, in, I was raided at that time or investigated at that time and shut down. My third charge is advertising because... I was circulating protocols and any electronic broadcast by a medical doctor is can be considered illegal here. And my final charge is, um, is dispensing unregistered drugs because I was dispensing them before a Ministry of Health approved them here. Wow. So from that point, the medical council had now laid a criminal charge, which they could no longer retract. So I was facing medical council disciplinary action, which happened throughout last year. I had four hearings. And finally, there's some very dodgy stuff that happened there. I had Tom Barodi and various people coming on as witnesses, and they shut that trial down. And then they called me for an emergency trial two weeks later, at which I was not allowed to mitigate. At that trial, they... I've got an A4 list of things that I have to do. I have to practice under supervision. I have to, I'm not allowed to do house calls. I'm not allowed to do teleconsults. I'm not allowed to prescribe ivermectin. I'm not allowed to use silver. There's a list. Basically, they've wow. shut me down. Wait, when was they've this, also, Jackie? How long ago? So for how long August. have you not been able to do, to treat COVID, essentially? August, August 2020. But I was in Baldwin, I make a plan. I might not August. Um, you're talking about August I'm of 2021. August, hold on, August of 2021. August yeah, they shut me down. August, September 2021. All right, so now we're at we're now we're in April of 2022. So in the last let's say six months, seven months. So after they really shut you down. So Jackie, let me let me ask you. So you were shut down, but you have a network of colleagues in your area and in that region 
who we're still able to treat, correct? Funny enough, I treated more people in London and Geneva and South Africa than I did in Zimbabwe. But in July last year, I, I did 18 hours of training to primary care doctors in how to manage this. So every doctor and every patient in this country knows how to use early treatment. Okay. Um, good, good. So then the, the criminal charges, the state, um, last year I was served summons to court and this is now my fourth appearance in court. I've kind of lost track of all of the disciplinary stuff. And you're talking about the um, criminal charges now. Now we're talking about the criminal charges because you were in court, I think, today and yesterday. Today, mainly today. Yesterday there was it was postponed. So tell us about what happened today. What did they say? What did you guys say? And and what's happening right now? So you're literally a doctor being brought under criminal charges, criminal, criminal, because you're using treatments that they may not agree with the evidence for. So what they've done, they're very clever. The charges they brought against me are not for ivermectin. They raided me because of the ivermectin, and then they found things they could pin on me. So every single doctor in this country is guilty of advertising. If you have put out an electronic broadcast in this country, it is illegal. And one of the reasons I think that they keep it in, in the Medical Act is so that they can control doctors. Mm. Because every doctor in this country knows that they have broken rules that carry criminal charges. So what they did, the only doctors that have been targeted are the ivermectin dispensing doctors, but they don't charge us with that. They charge us with practicing without a license because we haven't paid our subs on time because there's been lockdown and we couldn't. Right. Can you see what they've done? Yeah, so they get you on so like technicalities. They, yeah, they go they, after they, you exactly. for technicalities when really they want to go against you for your message and for your practice. So thank you for signing that letter that you put out, you thank guys you. put out. That letter was exceptionally powerful because what you state in that letter is that you are concerned that overseas doctors, because both doctors that reported me were English, that overseas doctors are interfering with the Zimbabwean way of treating people, which may not benefit the Zimbabwean people. That was a very powerful message. Your second very powerful message was that by persecuting doctors and making examples of them, you were concerned that doctors would be afraid to prescribe ivermectin. Yeah. And that is 100% the case. Doctors in this country, when they prescribe ivermectin, even <coughs> though it's legal, are afraid. And that's the same thing here. I think a lot more doctors would be prescribing if there wasn't so much horrific misinformation or disinformation, propaganda, and censorship. It's 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 miserable. This whole thing has been miserable with these attacks on on generic drugs. So so what happened in court today? Uh, so Jack, let's do this. Tell us what happened in court today. Tell us what a farce it was. Uh, tell us what the arguments on the other side was. And I want to hear about your kick ass arguments. And then we're going to switch over to questions. I'm sure there's people going to want to ask you questions. So oh yes, <laughs> you tell us. 
So your whole battle, just being a normal doctor, expert, biochemistry, clinician, you've had massive experience. You figured out stuff that worked in COVID. You started treating people. And this is the stuff that happened to you. And it led to today where you're actually under criminal charges with a potential, uh, what is it, the potential sentence of five years in jail? Five years, yeah. All right, so what happened That's today? The worst case. So this is the, they've postponed it and postponed it. And one of the reasons I think they may be postponing it is the longer they leave it, the less of a case they have. And they know that whatever the verdict, because <coughs> if they find me guilty, they go to the high court. If they find me not guilty, they put me through 14 months of sheer hell, okay? And they've also significantly impacted my ability to treat patients and my income. And therefore, I think that they're a little bit worried about what's going to happen once a verdict is passed, because until a verdict is passed, I can't counteract what's happened. So mm. part of me is wondering if they're postponing indefinitely because of that. It may just be incompetence of the state system. The second reason I think that they keep postponing it is just to do my head in. I think they're trying to wear me down. Um, I'm a very unfortunate in that my heritage is a combination of Viking and Scottish. So the more you annoy me, the more likely I am to attack back. <laughs> um, so, so far they have worn me down, but it hasn't lasted. I've had some phenomenal support in this country, which has been great. great. And great. I think that's the thing about this country is very different our sense of community is enormous, but I've also treated a lot of people in very high positions who've also protected me that I need to thank. Awesome. Um, anyway, so we arrive in court this morning and the medical council are there in all their glory. Um, I would call them the three stooges, but I probably shouldn't because that's not very nice. And they <coughs> start off and I get told that the prosecutor knew the case and was clearly taking my side had now been changed to a different court and they were changing the magistrate and they gave me the option to postpone to the 19th which is just more you know messed with the head stuff yeah delay tactics um otherwise i needed yeah, so otherwise we were going to transfer to court 10 from court 5 and i was going to be the last on the list discussion with my lawyer we thought of today anyway we said let's go to court 10 which I don't think they were expecting to happen. So we went. They put up one of their doctors who was one of the ins um, <coughs> inspection, if you call it that. And obviously the stuff that you wrote has highlighted the fact that we are now questioning why in Zimbabwe we are having ivermectin restricted. Because in this country, colonial interference is not considered a good thing. Because <laughs> generally, generally, people who come from out of Africa into Africa intend taking all of our resources. Yeah. Minerals, agricultural, brain power, <laughs> intellectual property, you name it. So we're quite sensitive about people um, interfering with our own systems. So now that the colonial question had been raised, especially with the UK, I don't know what happened this morning, but the whole tack changed. Wow. So instead of it now being 
the complainants were the two English doctors. Now, all of a sudden, someone very senior in the medical council became the complainant and produced at the beginning a whole lot of photocopy printouts of WhatsApp conversations where my name was not on it, neither was the recipient's name on it. And he used that as evidence for why he needed to launch an inspection on me. So not only did he, according to him, but I mean, the story changes every 30 seconds. It's worse than the together trial. Um, the, the, not only was he the complainant, but he also said that on the 17th of January, he consulted with all 18 members of council. Now, the 17th of January was a Sunday. The 17th of January was also the day that Tess Laurie had the conversation with Andrew Hill. And if you look at the association between Unitaid and Wellcome Trust, they are running the therapeutics division of the Act A under WHO. Of course. And we all know about the WHO treaty. So while my story might, I, I mean, I would, I would call myself a conspiracy theorist if I was listening to myself, but I just find it very interesting that the attack on me happened on exactly the same day that Andrew Hill was shut down. Crazy. And by a similar set of I have two so questions. So the attack this morning in court was this has nothing to do with English people. This is all to do with Zimbabwean doctors who reported you. And it was just crazy. They then unpacked a box of stuff that they confiscated from me. And the doctor was holding up this ivermectin bottle and a giving set and saying that I had put the giving set into the ivermectin bottle. And there were needles and syringes. And they counted every single red top, yellow top, purple top and gray top tube I had and every single syringe in front of me to prove to me the doctor shouldn't be taking blood from patients or using syringes on them because who knows what might happen. This is insane, Jack. Anyway, it's crazy. Hold on, Flavia, did you have a question? I do have two <laughs> questions. Uh, first of all, uh, do you, uh, because there are two types of uh, trials, we could say. The one would be for the a trial on the federal federal uh, board or doc, doctors, and the other one would be in the regular justice. Were you in both or only one of these two? And my second question would be: Don't you think that it would could consider uh, going further international courts? Because you, as far as I could notice, you've you've been the respect a lot of basic human rights and the right, your basic rights to defend yourselves in a impartial way, I think it's completely lost. They are completely suspicious. So I think an international court would work pretty well. Look, what we're doing, there's a system to go through. I have already been found guilty by counsel of gross misconduct. Okay. I have appealed and the appeal will be heard in the high court. So it will okay. be heard in May. So um, in that, you'll be interested to know, Pierre, I have to have two independent evaluations by a psychiatrist. You know, that happened. Hold on, Jackie. You know, in the cases that I've known in the United States, 
I have been interacting with a number of doctors who've been investigated by their medical boards for prescribing ivermectin. Most of them have been sort of let go. Nothing, no actions were taken. But one woman, Meryl Nass, who's quite famous because she's she's had a long time experience in uh, bio, sort of um, in pandemic responses bio-warfare defenses, uh, anthrax vaccines. She got investigated and also had to be sent to a psychiatrist. And she was on our webinar. Um, and so it it's just another evidence of the absurdity. So so anyway, Jackie, you were in court today. You're still fighting. Um, it sounds like still fighting. Yes, they, they, they changed the magistrate. They changed the prosecutor. But I mean, we, we know that you're on the right side of truth. Uh, it doesn't mean that good things will happen, but just know that we have your support. And and I, I, I'm just so exhausted, Jackie. I'm so exhausted by the insanity, the inanity, the, the, the absurdities. It, it's like they don't stop. And and they paint themselves. No, yeah, you need a new attitude. You need a new attitude. I tell you what, I... I had to change my perspective. I spent the whole of last weekend with a neurolinguistic programmer who's a friend of mine. And I've got a very good friend who's a very talented lawyer. And she said, right, we're going to now see this as a game. This is sport. Okay. And what you're going to do is put up as many nooses as you can in the courtroom, largely by keeping quiet and watch them walk into them. So I can't go too far in this discussion but the cross-examination on the 22nd is just going to be fantastic. I've written out all the questions, every contradiction that has been made. And the bottom line is that I'd be very surprised if they come up with a conviction. Um, Jackie, you know, is it going to be a television? Very, is, very solid. They're expensive, Jackie. but they're very, very solid. Well, of course, I would be surprised if they come with a conviction, but well, actually, I don't know if I would say that because I've seen just so many absurd decisions and things that have happened. But in that cross examination, will there be a camera or an audio? No. Ah. No way. No However, it is an right. open courtroom. <laughs> All right, so Betty, and there will be there will be journalists no. in there. We have a question from one of our one of our viewers. Uh, Arthur says, "If you're found not guilty, can you sue the government for the ordeal? And how many patients did not receive care from you because of the harassment by the government?" Jackie. Jackie? I, I want to make something very, very clear here. The Zimbabwean government have been 100% behind Ivermectin. Our Ministry of Health and our Permanent Secretary of Health on the 26th of Jan last year said, and I quote, while it is our duty to protect the patients, we also cannot deny them effective treatment. And Zimbabwe became the largest importer of Ivermectin in the world in January, February last year. So this has nothing to do with our government, we have to distinguish between governments and medical councils because our government is not paid off by Big Pharma, whereas our medical systems are the Medical Research Council, Medicines Control Authority of Zimbabwe, Interesting. Medicine, Medical 
Professionals Council. Oh. So it's actually the corrupt doctors that are the problem. All right. Now here's another question. Exactly like you. Brazil, the same <laughs> situation we face in Brazil. It's it's the government does not uh, is not uh, paid off unlike the medical associations. Exact same situation, Jackie. Crazy. We have... and I think it's important to say that doctors everywhere in the world can be bought. You know, there is an art of medicine and there is a science of medicine. And the art follows the oath. If you read the Hippocratic Oath, it says, I will pass on this art. And the art is what has been forgotten. There are lots of viable doctors. There are plenty of them. Welcome Trust could probably come out and find 10 that would do the job. But the, those of us that follow the oath and the art of medicine will do the right thing. So I think it's very important, not especially in low-middle-income countries, and especially since the West paints African countries as dictatorships. And people will automatically blame the government. It's not the government. It's actually the corrupt doctors. Interesting. We have yeah. another question specifically for you on, on your protocol. And many of our viewers want to know, what is the efficacy of using colloidal silver for COVID? Where can it be obtained and how is it dosed? Okay. So when you talk about, I have a big problem with the term colloidal silver because it has been so badly, there are quacks that make ridiculous claims about it. And it's very important, I could give a whole lecture on silver because there's an ionic component and there's a nanoparticulate component. The ionic component will stop viral replication. The nanoparticulate component, we believe carries oxygen and it also binds to the spike protein. So we actually make our own IO nano solution. Um, and it's been done with research with a guy in Adelaide, exactly how to make it. <laughs> Probably the closest that you've got in um, the States is Argentum 23. And that we would nebulize five mils three times a day. You can't overdose with it if you're using it in the short term. You need 10 grams of silver before you turn blue and you are dealing in micrograms per mil. So you basically probably need five to 8,000 doses before you become toxic. So what we do is we nebulize three times a day um, and often more, especially if the patient's hypoxic. If you go to www.ivermectin.africa, <coughs> all the Zimbabwe protocols are on there. Okay. Great. Um, now, this is an interesting statement that I'm about to make because we've had a plethora of questions about snakes. And folks, I have to tell you this. All right. We've received a lot of questions in the chat and in the Q&A about the story that's circulating today about snake venom in some of the vaccines. Um, all we can say is that we all need more transparency from Big Pharma, uh, and then we wouldn't have these questions. Our physician team is studying the news surrounding this and we'll have more to say as we learn something uh we don't know much at this point in time so um 
that's just where that is. And our doctors aren't prepared to discuss it until they have a chance to see what's out there and what's going on. As you know, the data from Big Pharma has been somewhat obscure, to say the least. So let's go to another question that we think we can answer. And that is from an old friend of ours, Dr. Bruce Barrow says, Bruce. Bruce is on. Comment on the rash of ivermectin peer-reviewed studies showing ivermectin having an anti-tumor benefit. The big pharma stance against ivermectin may be that they didn't want to disrupt the $512 billion cancer treatment market. Ivermectin is a potential miracle drug. Doctors? Well, <clears throat> so I have been collecting lots of papers about the anti-tumor effects of ivermectin, including case reports, case series. Um, it's really compelling, right? It, ivermectin is a fascinating molecular compound, right? Because it has anti-parasitic properties, antiviral properties. When I was at the International COVID Summit in France, uh, um, a microbiologist was gave a lecture on its antibacterial properties. And so remember the, the discoverer of ivermectin, Satoshi Murr, he called it a wonder drug because it, it, the reason why it's amazing is it just has such a high safety profile and it has so many mechanisms. It truly does seem like a wonder drug. And, and the cancer aspect is something that it's really weird that Bruce asked that because today an old friend from college out of nowhere texted me, Hey, I appreciate your work you're doing in COVID. Da, da, da. Do you have any information on ivermectin and cancer? And I actually have a document where I have a, a whole bunch of uh, references and studies. And I just sent it to her. Like, I'm not a cancer, I'm not an ivermectin and cancer expert. So I don't want to talk too deeply about that. But the, the anti-tumor and anti-cancer properties are, are great. I'm sure, uh, Flavio, do you know more than me? I'm sure you do. No, oh, well, not at all. So I want you to compliment with the metabolic side. So I'm going, I'm going to uh, pull to my side uh, as an endocrinologist. And so uh, there is compelling evidence that ivermectin works as a liver cleaner let's say like that it works in the it has it is already uh proven that it works in the in receptors that clean up the fat from the liver so we noticed that in our trial in, in tajay those among hostilized patients those who were using ivermectin in a chronic manner regular and chronic manner they had improved uh, lower uh, liver transaminases and likely anti-diabetic effects as well. So I, we were hypothesizing that part of the improvement with ivermectin, uh, which it's regular use, especially along the time, may be related to its improvement on the metabolic profile as well, because we know that uh, I hypothesize, this is not evidence, that it may also regulate the renin and jotensin aldosterone system that ultimately regulates the ACE2, which is the protein from where used by the virus SARS-CoV-2 to enter yeah. into the cells. So I hypothesize that. Interesting. 
Well, Flavio, I believe ivermectin, I can't remember where or how. I don't know that it's recommended, but there are trials of it in NASH, right? What we call NASH in the United States, which is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Ivermectin has been shown to be effective in that, I believe. Yeah, but I don't think there will be any more unless uh, you cannot fight against the industry. So it's going to be hard to have independent investigator-initiated trials on that. So Of course, of course. Don't they have to mix it with something else and patent the mix, and then they can do it and make a gazillion dollars off of it? Isn't that what they do? Exactly. They can change the angle. Of the, yeah, of course. Oh, well, well I'm sure we'll see, hear that come out under a fancy brand name. Um, guys, you know, we've, we've the shot the, side, we've shot the hour. Can you take a few more questions? Because we've got good ones. Okay, a couple more. All right. Uh, Christina Tron says, if someone has been vaccinated, have there been any instances that something such as HPV throat cancer or some other type of dormant virus have emerged? Well, in post-vaccine, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing my practice on long haulers and post-vaccine. And we, we have identified, I mean, we, we think there are maybe six or seven pathophysiologic mechanisms that are operating from persistent immune stimulation of the monocytes and macrophages to autoimmunity, to hypercoagulability, to mast cell activation, to reactivation of dormant viruses. That's one of them. And so certainly we have, as my colleagues that I talk with have seen that. Um, and the mechanisms continue to be described. I mean, uh, reactivation of cancers, that, that again, there's no studies on this, right? Because unfortunately, the journals, are, they, they don't, journals and the academic medical centers do not recognize post-vaccine syndromes. Um, Ryan, Cole, Ryan Cole talks about it, right? Because he literally reads thousands of biopsies or hundreds of biopsies a week. He's a pathologist. That's what he yeah, does. He's a pathologist. <laughs> yeah. And he's seeing cancers in younger patients and stranger cancers than he's seen before. And again, it, I, I don't think this is well studied because it's such a controversial area. But um, in the post-vaccine space, we're, we're seeing a lot of ill people. And, and you know, as I treat them, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say I guess, but I have some understanding what could be going on with them, but some of them are beyond my comprehension. And, and as much as I know about it, it's about a 10th of what I want to know about it. And so it's, it's a complex space. We have a question from Gwendolyn Simmons that follows up on this. She says, my daughter was triple vaccinated and has developed thyroid problems all of a sudden. Oh. My neighbor has been diagnosed with thyroid cancer. She got the J&J &J shot and then she took an mRNA booster. Has there been an uptick in thyroid problems since the vaccines? Keith Berkowitz, one of ours, and actually we have an endocrinologist, so I'm going to shut up and push it. Put, I'm going to put it off to to Flavio. He's the endocrinologist. I was just going to mention that Keith has been talking about that in his practice. He's seeing a lot of thyroid abnormalities. But Flavio, you want to weigh in? Okay. Uh, make the story short. Up to ten percent develop anti-thyroid uh, antibodies. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Regarding the, the thyroid cancer, we need to be a little bit careful because uh, many of the thyroid cancers are already there and were not previously diagnosed. 
So sometimes when you start investigating abnormalities in thyroid function, and then you realize there's a nodule, and then you undergo. So not to try to keep, I'm trying to be the most impartial possible, not to keep blaming all the time. Otherwise, we're going to sound a little bit conspiracy. It would be too early to develop, a, only if that was an aggressive thyroid cancer, because usually thyroid cancer takes many years to grow. So maybe we were going to face this uh, diagnosis, but the thyroid function, yes. And not only restricted antibodies for thyroid cancer function, up to 5% develop anti-GAD uh, antibodies, which are the antibodies that, uh, that takes you to develop type one diabetes that is, has um, a, a pandemic, an epidemic occurring not only children, but also in adults. So we need to be very careful and watch out everything. The main message regarding, there's one point very quickly. Uh, I'm submitting my theory regarding what is underlying the thousands of cases of myocarditis occurring in the sudden deaths. And the editor told me that it was, the correlation was not demonstrated. So I needed, okay. So I'm gonna explain regardless of the, so I needed to change my article. So, okay, let's pretend that the correlation does not exist. It's still, uh, it is still um, speculation. So let's try to explain the mechanism regardless of the correlation. That's how I had to act. So we are deniers. We are denying the obvious. So this is sort of hard to practice science when you have uh, this type of denial. So it's, you need to watch out everything. We don't know what will happen in the future. I hope we are wrong. I really hope. Uh, many of our suspicions will be wrong, but everything that is atypical must be monitored closely, despite of not being told by anyone. But if World Health Organization had any responsibility, I mean, real care for the world, they would tell everyone to make a very strict surveillance, at least. So you Flavio, just led to Flavio, the last what question. What, what you're saying, Flavio, is that any anomalies or abnormalities or aberrancies that we see, we shouldn't just ignore them and say it's not due to the vaccine. Yeah, just pretend. Okay, no. that seems reasonable. Yeah, anything that might make for vaccine hesitancy, forget it. It didn't happen. Okay. Can I just make a comment here? Please. And that yeah. is that we don't have mRNA vaccines in Zimbabwe because obviously there's a Chinese Zimbabwe connection. So we have Sinovac and Sinopharm and the mRNA vaccines have not been allowed in. And the only time we see these disorders is in people who've been to South Africa and you've had mRNA vaccines. So the autoimmunity, the severe COVIDs, the reactivations of breast cancer, they all are not happening with old technology, but we are seeing them in people who are vaccinated with mRNA vaccines. Okay, now here is the final question uh, from Dory Kelly says, can you talk about the WHO pandemic treaty that Tess Lowry wrote about today? So uh, let me let me say two words on that, and then Flavio and Jackie, please say what you want to say. But um, I, I've run out of adjectives for the things that are proposed uh, in the world against COVID and any other pandemics. But it's an absolute absurdity and an obscenity, right? So you're talking about a treaty uh, 
which is essentially serving to centralize control at the WHO level with all countries subservient to whatever policies or practices or interventions they want to do. And so all I can say to that is, let's look at our country and see how that worked out. We, we deferred everything to our health agencies with non-elected officials um, who are clearly under state of regulatory capture. The pharmaceutical industry is well described to have taken over the WHO in the last 20 years. And so in the next pandemic, all of the countries on the planet or Western countries, whoever, they want to sign off their individual constitutional rights and defer the power to a centralized control. It is absolutely absurd on its face. I cannot even believe that it's even being proposed or even being entertained or how far it's gotten. But I will tell you that in this country, I don't want to go into politics, but I do believe there's going to be a big political shift after the, the I'm going to just say it, the shit show of COVID, the catastrophic, colossal failure of the response to COVID in this country. I think that's going to lead to a political shift. And I think the politics that are going to come over will never stand for this, never cede control to an international organization that is well described as being infiltrated and taken over by the pharmaceutical industry. That was more than two sentences, but that's all I have to say. Anyone else want to comment on that? We've got two other countries represented. Jackie, what do you got with the WHO treaty? <laughs> I can't do that in two sentences. So, <laughs> um, so I've never thought that COVID was anything to do with medicine. It was a massive smokescreen. Um, COVID really is a very, very easily treatable disease in, in the early stages, and we've known that since 2020. I do think that the only way that you could get global control is with a pandemic because I can't see you doing it in any other way. And I'm very concerned about the change in the rules, which say before you had to be sick before. So if you've, you can't declare 135,000 people with malaria by testing them, they have to be sick and be tested. Whereas you can have a test demic. So if the WHO decide that they're going to, that the next virus is the loaded bollocks virus and they develop a test for it and everybody tests positive for it, they can lock us down, they can quarantine us and they can force us to have vaccines that we don't necessarily want for it. And the biggest disaster for that is economic collapse. Now, the only continent that I'm aware of with the resources that the world still needs, and I'm talking platinum, gold, iron, diamonds, tin, chrome, the whole lot is Africa. And the world tells Africa how poor we are and how badly we need their help. Well, we sure as hell don't need your mRNA vaccines and we don't need your very expensive patented Pfizer drugs. Our, our results are 10 times better than yours. And I'm, I'm, this is no sort of offense to, to the Northern Hemisphere, but really, do we want to do what you're doing? And the answer is definitely not, thank you very much. So why must we have the WHO impose lockdown on our country and add, we've already had 3 million added to our extreme poor. Those are people that earn less than a dollar a day. They are starving. So my feeling about the WHO treaty is I think that Africa needs a big move towards this, that Africa would be better off 
saying to the WHO, keep all your medication. I think India are about to leave the WHO as well. And between India and Africa, we could actually create our own wealth with our minerals and our agriculture and buy sensibly priced drugs from India. And that's the way I think we should be going. Um, Brilliant. Jackie, I want you to be the health minister for Africa. That's right. That's right. <laughs> or at least Zimbabwe. Sensible. <laughs> Sensible. Uh, well, uh, I think that's a great place to end, unless, Flavio, you had something that you were dying to say on that subject. Uh, if not, uh, we will we'll say thank you, doctors. Uh, you'd, what, any, any thoughts about the hoop? I better not bring them here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. I all. thought I went far enough and Jackie went farther. So I think That's Jackie right. covered it very well. <laughs> and Jackie, boy, do we wish you luck. And the first thing I want to tell you all out there is, as you can figure out, uh, Jackie's facing a mountain of legal bills. And we've set up a special fund to help her defray these costs. Yes. So there you can see how to get in touch and how you can please give, you know, if you can uh, share the information, share the link, if you can. It is a way to thank her for her incredible bravery and her good doctoring. And, and thank you, Jackie, and good luck Betsy, with all of this. Betsy, yes. let, me ask, let, me, let me add one thing is that, yeah. you know, another reason to support Jackie is that she was offered kind of a plea thing where she could have accepted a lesser or mild punishment. And she didn't do that. And I, she didn't do that for really, uh, I would say very moral and ethical reasons. And so we want to help her in her continued fight. Um, cause I think her case is going to be important. And, and I think, um, I, I think it's a perfect cause for our supporters to, to help with. And so, Jackie, you know, we're behind you. We wrote the letter. We're trying to get money for you. I mean, this is such bullshit. I'm just going to curse. I mean, and, and that's a mild curse for what it really is. I mean, it's an atrocity. But um, we're just doctors trying to help people. And this is the crap that's coming at us. And you're getting it worse than I am. So anyway, we're here to support you, okay? Indeed. Indeed. Now, while we're giving thanks, folks, I want to thank the nurses who were working for us behind the scenes, answering your questions. We have, let's, can we see our CRNA, Christina Maros. Uh, where's Christina? Can we spotlight her and, and give a wave? And we have our nurse practitioner, Scott Marsland and Mary Beth Charno, another NP and Samantha Hanks, a new one with us tonight. Samantha is, so well, there's Christina uh, and Samantha's an RN. And how many questions did you have tonight, Christina? We had a um, hundred and I think actually we had about 200, we had 113 <laughs> and we have 27 still open. All right. Well, and we usually stay on for a few more minutes. So hopefully uh, we can get to some of those folks and you guys, you're, you're terrific. And we thank you so much for being there and helping all of the folks who can't get through to the doctors all of the time, but you folks are very qualified. We did a nurses show a couple of weeks ago and you saw, this is a top team. These are good folks. Well-trained. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, we also want to thank all of you who made a gift <coughs> during our recent Healthcare Heroes campaign. And I'm gonna take another drink here. Mm. 
<coughs> there we go. Show that slide. Aren't that wonderful? <coughs> Sorry. We exceeded our goal thanks to you, raising over $60,000 in just over a week. And as you know, most nearly all of that was matched by a very generous donor. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We appreciate your help out there. And of course, we appreciate our doctors, our nurses who are out there fighting for you and fighting for your health. But you out there make it all possible. We're, we strictly are dependent on the donations. Uh, that's it. We're, we don't sell anything else. We're not selling medicines or anything like that. We're just giving out information. We've always been <laughs> giving it out. And if you have the ability to give any more, there's how to do it. We, um, we are gracious, grateful to anything that you can provide. And just one other thing that I need to tell you about, we don't want you to forget that Dr. Bean is now with us and doing wonderful programs. We have three episodes in our new video series covering everything from diabetes and long COVID to pediatric cardiac issues post-vaccination. Dr. Bean is a great educator. Uh, and so tune into his program, Long Story Short with Dr. Bean. And we are delighted to have him with us and we're delighted to have you watching. Thank you all again. And we now close out with a video from another one of our people who uh, we're so glad to hear from, uh, people that our doctors have helped. Thank you, thank you. And we'll be, you, we'll be here, see you next week. Hi, I'm Joanne. I received my first and only Moderna shot on January 14th of 2021. Within a few days, I suffered multiple autoimmune attacks and was put under the care of my primary physician and a neurologist. My symptoms included bilateral sensory motor neuropathy in my feet and legs, vertigo, a variety of cognitive issues, including um, short-term memory, long-term memory, uh, speech, uh, critical thinking skills. I also suffered uh, from arthritis, chronic fatigue, and muscle aches. My doctors focused on, on the why me, and they searched in depth for underlying causes that might have allowed these issues to move forward in my system. After extensive testing for a wide variety of cancers, toxicity exposure, vitamin deficiencies, folate deficiency, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, diabetes, and other issues, no condition could be identified and therefore no effective treatment was available for me. After five months of evaluation, my doctor proposed that I be referred to Mayo. At that time, I reached out to the FLCCC and was able to schedule an online appointment with a doctor. What followed was six weeks of treatment using ivermectin. As a result, the burning in my legs, while not entirely gone, has subsided. The arthritis, muscle aches, vertigo, chronic fatigue are no longer issues. My mental health troubles have improved considerably. 
My FLCCC doctor put me on two weeks of fluvoxamine and this helped my cognition even more. At this time, I'm left with slight burning in my feet. The nerve damage that happened in my feet left me with bilateral dead zones and I'm hopeful that those might improve over time. I would say I'm there about, I've reached about 98% healing as far as my brain goes and I'm working toward full recovery. I'm now following the FLCCC protocol for prevention as I'm living in a COVID-rich environment. When I first saw my doctors in January, they told me, both of them told me, they had not seen this in anyone else. At my last appointment, my primary care doctor said, you are not the only one. I feel like I've been given my life back. I'm so thankful, I'm so grateful, and I so appreciate the FLCCC doctors and the work that they're doing to help people like me. Thank you.